for those who don't have an eating disorder, there are very common sites in the brain that are that address eating, decisions about eating, perception of how you look from eating, and the eating experience itself. When persons with anorexia and bulimia and binge eating are put into this uh, fMRI scanner, very different reactions occur. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there. Welcome to today's podcast. I know um, I'm often excited about podcasts, frankly. Um, I love doing this. I love speaking to people that are professionals in the field of eating disorders. I love speaking to sufferers in the field of eating disorders and learning from all experiences. Um, But today I spoke to Dr. Laura Hill, who has been working as a researcher, a scientist and a professional in the field of eating disorders for let's just say a very long time. Um, I contacted um, Dr. Hill due to some research that um, has been published, I think just last week, on a program that she's put together for um, teaching people about the neurobiological basis of eating disorders. That's going fantastically well. And in this podcast, we talk about that, but we also talk about many parts of eating disorders and where in the brain those behaviors come from and so just in this podcast alone talking to Dr. Hill I learned so much about my own behaviors when I was suffering from an eating disorder that made sense when she explained it in terms of how the brain works Um, we talk about the um, compulsive exercise that many of us feel and why that happens and why it actually makes sense that it happens when you dissect the way that the brain works when an eating disorder is affecting it. We also talk about why food restriction happens and why that makes sense for a person who has an eating disorder in their brain. Um, When you understand how the brain works and the different areas of the brain and how they interact with one another. So I have listened to this five times now (laughs) to embed the information in my own brain I have not edited this conversation and it's almost an hour long. So sit down with this one, maybe listen to it in batches, but being in a place where you can really digest the information that this woman is going to give you about eating disorders. It's it's revolutionary. We're really beginning to think about eating disorders as brain-based illnesses. And that is changing the way that we look at treatment. So there is so much in here. Please sit down and really enjoy listening to this one. Here's the podcast. Hello, Tabitha. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Nice to meet you too. I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to you. I I would love to actually start. I mean, I'm I'm a fan, so I know all about you. (laughs) Well, at least I think I do. I probably don't. Um, I would love to start with, with you for anybody that does not know about you and what you do. Just introduce yourself and and tell us what you do. Okay. Um, I'm Dr. Laura Hill. I am the president and CEO of the Center for Balanced Living, which is a nonprofit, uh, freestanding organization that specializes in the treatment, education, and research of eating disorders in Columbus, Ohio. It opened in 2016 
prior, excuse me, it opened in 2000 and we've been um, open now for 16 years. Um, it, um, prior to that, in the uh, early 1990s, I was the director of the, what was then identified as the National Eating Disorder Organization, which is now called the National Eating Disorders Association. And when it moved out of its national office at that time in Columbus, Ohio, I stayed in Columbus to continue work with eating disorders, and its office, office ultimately moved to New York City, where it's the best place for it to be located. Prior to that, I um, conducted research and uh, worked on various multiple um, college campuses addressing eating disorders. Um, my very first case in eating disorders was in 1979. Uh, I was directing a counseling center out west, and um, uh, one of the science professors came to me and said, Laura, my daughter has a condition that um, she's highly emaciated. She's been through many tests. We're not sure what it is, but it's uh, recently been thought she may have anorexia. And I said, what is that? And um, he said, well, she doesn't appear to be able to tolerate eating. So I tried offering her counseling and therapy at the counseling center at the campus and failed miserably. And um, I have a trait that is, I would say, a, a moderate to strong trait of stubbornness. And um, I could not stand the fact that I was doing so poorly with the students, not only this one, but then others that came in with eating problems, such as binging and purging. Um, I couldn't figure out how to approach the students, how to help, what treatments might help, what doesn't help. Well, I was finding out what wasn't helping. So I started taking notes and created vials of, all right, what's biological? What's brain uh, going on in the brain? What's family related? What is social? What are the social impacts that might be triggering this? And just had many, many questions throughout those academic years uh, while I was overseeing the uh, program and saw that all of us at the counseling center uh, were doing poorly in that area more than any other area. So I went back and started interviewing for a doctorate and said, I want courses that are going to help me answer the following questions and kind of got out my files and, and interviewed and found that at that particular campus, they said, well, if you take a class in this, 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 it looks like you need a doctorate in counseling psychology, and that might help you research enough areas to be able to meet your questions. So that's what I did. I determined the degree based on that particular area. And then when I started um, entering my graduate work in the early 80s, I, that's when I learned that it was um, just being diagnosed in 1980, that I wasn't the last to understand this illness, that I was among the first to start to explore this illness, and therefore joined colleagues um, uh, such as Craig Johnson and James Mitchell and wonderful, amazing people, Janet Treasure in London, amazing people, following their research, communicating with them in their research, asking them what they were doing and how they were able to address these issues, ended up writing a two-part dissertation, one on the prevalence changes um, from DSM-3 to DSM-3R, 
Um, and then also looking at a cognitive behavioral short-term treatment for bulimia nervosa. And in those days, we actually thought in 12 easy sessions you could overcome bulimia nervosa um, and only to realize how little we knew and how little we knew from the 80s and the 90s until the early 2000s when technology began to help us shift um, looking at the illness from the outside and starting to look at it from the inside. I think it's probably a misnamed illness because we, we've it was named based on its the action the you know the problem eating issues the um, disordered eating issues, and therefore all kinds of theories have developed and accrued over the last thirty years that have um, placed a lot of guilt on individuals, um, only to realize that um, they have a biologically based illness that we're just beginning to understand. And uh, we have a lot to learn about it. I'll add, and you may choose to take this out of your interview, um, ultimately, Tabitha, but something I've been contemplating is um, in, uh, as we look at type one diabetes, for example, we know it's been an illness for hundreds and thousands of years. Babies and children and and were dying of, of diabetes, and it was always called an illness of sweet pea. And um, because the glucose and all the energy that was taken into the body was just being peed out. And um, it wasn't until about 1915 that the diagnosis became was honed in and they realized it was the pancreas. And the pancreas was in fact not producing insulin. And as, as science knows, Insulin is absolutely critical. It matches up with your energy molecules to be able to help the energy get into the cells of the body. No insulin, the body is starving to death. So we've always known symptoms of type 1 diabetes and type 2 to be irritability as the blood sugar becomes um, imbalanced. Um, person drinks a whole lot of water, gets a uh, incredibly irritated, angry, has anger outbursts, and starves. Uh, the body the, is losing huge amounts of weight. And, and for type 1 diabetes, many children were dying. So in 1915, they were able to identify the illness. They began to diagnose it, and they saw it was the lack of insulin. But it took about 10 years to actually create an, a synthetic insulin so that the body could then start absorbing it. So you dose the insulin based on the amounts that are eaten and we and people can move on and have wonderful, productive lives. I think eating disorders are in 2016, about where diabetes research was in 1915. We're about 100 years behind. Our research dollars have been minimized but if we treated diabetes the way we've been treating eating disorders over the last 30 years, we would say, you need to start eating more, you need to drink less water, and you need to go to anger management classes. And the reality is, none of that would have been able to really restabilize and stabilize the illness. We now know that eating disorders are a biologically based illness and they must get stabilized biologically 
in order to be able to address the social impact that one experiences and how the social impact shapes the illness. So um, the beauty is, based on some major and wonderful research, um, around 2000, early 2000s, um, people like Dr. Walter Kay um, and Janet Treasure and Guido Frank, um, major researchers in the neurobiology of the illness, um, are looking at fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance images, and been have been able to start identifying the pathways in the brain that are impacted by food and eating, and saw that for those who don't have an eating disorder, there are very common sites in the brain that are that address eating, decisions about eating, perception of how you look from eating, and the eating experience itself. And that when persons with anorexia and bulimia and binge eating are put into this uh, fMRI scanner, very different reactions occur. Same areas, um, but very different reactions. And it's those responses of the brain that are now helping to inform new forms of treatment, whether it's going to become more biologically based treatment that therapy can then help shape. But in the meantime, we're still making the insulin. We are, we've seen what is happening, but we're figuring out what can be done about it. And so we're in that gap as I would, as I see it. Yeah. And, um, thank you. That, that was, that's just listening to you talk about, um, what you what you said about the neurobiology and and the areas of the brain it gives me goosebumps because as a sufferer that for so long had sort of been told just like you you know you said I've been told that I needed to go and eat more mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that it was an emotional problem that I had um, and knowing that wasn't knowing deep down that was not true that was not me and that there was something else um, yes. and so you know that that's terrific validation I, I feel that so many especially as adult sufferers that have a little bit more of an idea of who we were especially if we have a late onset we, i had an yes. idea of who i was before and who mm -hmm. i was before was not somebody that yes. had an emotional problem with food or just mm -hmm. was, i just wasn't that person and so mm -hmm. i think that it's really important um for those of us that are older especially to, to hear that sort of thing and, and then we can actually approach treatment ourselves in a different sort of way uh, and and how we go, think about the um illness ourselves and the type of treatment that we go for mm -hmm. yeah and the um hearing you say that tabitha it reminds me that um from the treatment provider perspective when i was first starting to read um dr k's research um and and make sense try to make sense of it um, and then because of my early research, and I've known Walt for many, many years, decades, and um, I'm calling him up and going, all right, am I interpreting what you're saying accurately? And his response was, uh, yes. And I said, well, this is how I'm sharing it with the clients. And he said, and how are they responding? And I said, Walt, they're saying this is dead on. This is it. It's it's describing what they're experiencing. I mean, in 25 years prior to that, 
I never even thought to ask clients with an eating disorder if, if they could taste or if they could, if they had a clear sense of hunger or fullness or if they felt any sense of uh, pleasure from what they're eating or what that mental noise was like from eating. And um, so once we realized that there was a biological contribution that was creating those responses, um, I just went back and started apologizing to clients and, um, and felt an incredible shift of um, uh, another whole level in treatment for me in that I then started saying, all right, we're in this together. Now, I'll share with you what I'm seeing, what the research is sharing. You tell me what is true or not true for you. And then from there, I'll try to figure out what we can try to do to manage it differently. And that was the beginning of when I started creating kind of a, a brain-based clinical tools to try to replicate what I was seeing was happening in the brain. I'd try them out with um, clients in the groups, whether in our partial hospital groups or IOP groups. And I'd say, okay, this is what the areas that it seemed to be happening. And I created the brainwave first. And I'd say, these are the areas that seem to be happening. Now, this what is appearing to happen when you don't have an eating disorder. And so I was, I created this wave of response and they, each client took on a different response and they were standing in the position on the floor where it would be firing in the brain. And um, I wanted it to be a game. I wanted it to be movement involved. I wanted them to be a part of the voice of what they were hearing. And so they helped shape. I'd say it looks like the, the research would give this kind of a message. Is that the kind of message you experience in your brain? So they would help me refine it. And we refined it over a um, couple years. And I'll never forget, one group said, you've got it. Now let's take it to our families to show them what's going on in our brain. And then I took the brainwave to the families and the clients helped me show the families and have them be the brain responses and sh shout out their responses. And the every to a T, every time the families do the brainwave to the, we're actually conducting it this week in our one week trials. Um, the families turn to their loved one and say, it's not that bad, is it? It's not that bad. And the adults look at them and go, it's that bad. Mm -hmm. And then the spouses, the mothers, the aunts, the grandparents, they all began to realize it together and begin to go, well, if it's like that, what can we do? And then we start with the other tools that have evolved over the years. So I have to say, um, while research is starting to make progress, it's the clients' voices and their experiences who are actively starting to to shape treatment. Yes, um, and it's you started off by saying sort of you talk you were talking about diabetes and, and sort of also the definition and of eating disorders and um, anorexia being called anorexia um, and. I um, I often when somebody asks me um, I say I I believe that my I have an eating disorder and it's a mental illness and mm -hmm. a lot of people say oh you not many people use that term mental illness and doesn't that make you feel like a crazy person and I say I have a fear reaction of f when I see food there's not that much that's crazier than that it's, <laughs> you know, it's that's good and and that you can have 
you can have that um, that wonderful humor about it. I mean, if we can't laugh at it, we're crying with it. But so, um, true. so the reality is, um, I like what Thomas Ensel uh, says in his um, TED talk. Actually, um, he was director of the um, National Institute of Mental Health up through December of last year. And um, Dr. Insel said that mental health and uh, behavioral health has traditionally looked at everything from the outside in, and that we wait till it becomes the actual behaviors instead of really getting into the brain to see where it is erupting and what's going on. And as a result, we need to change the definition and call the, call it for what it is. Uh, call all mental or behavioral health brain-based illnesses. And so I have a brain-based um, reaction or I have a reaction to food. And no one thinks twice if you've got a peanut response. So I advise clients and their families, if you're going in the restaurant and you can't eat certain things and you have a backup meal, then just say, you know, I've got a reaction to a lot of things on this menu right now. So you guys go ahead and order and I'll go ahead and um, have what I brought so we can all talk and share together. But I'm, I'll take care of me. Yes. Um, and it's really important being able to do that as a sufferer. I mean, that, that like you said, the restaurant experience can be difficult. And I have... Yes before sort of just said to the people that I am with sorry if I look if I'm if I seem agitated right now it's because my eating disorder is kicking off and giving me yes. a hell of a time so just yes. give me a couple of minutes and when it is recognized as a mental illness or a brain-based illness that's okay to say that if I was it, diabetic I'd be able to say I have to order this because I have diabetes and I'm treating yes. it and yes. It, it gives me the ability to say hey I'm just managing this illness that I have you said it and couldn't have said it better, Tabitha. But um, and it's really what has given people like me the ability to say that and feel that is mm -hmm. the research. You just published a paper. I'd I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, I worked with uh, colleagues from the University of California, San Diego, where Dr. Walter Kay uh, directs the eating disorder research and treatment there, and Christina Waringa, uh, also. Um, neuropsychologist, and Stephanie Natz Peck, who is a psychologist. And um, UC San Diego started uh, over 10 years ago developing a one-week treatment for um, adolescents with anorexia and how to bring the family in. It's a very family-based um, following the work of um, James Locke and Daniel LaGrange, uh, looking at family-based treatment and giving them, though adding more than just FBT, family-based treatment, adding much more about the brain information and what um, their uh, site is finding from the brain research. So in my work in collaboration with them and our clinic center uh, partners with them, what um, we started exploring was how could we be looking at adults with anorexia because traditionally treatment um, has trained everyone in psychology, counseling, social work, that when you're 18, you're independent, you should be individualized, you should be able to do it on your own. And um, treatment providers were stepping away from the support people and um, instead of um, recognizing that maybe they still need some support. 
due to the illness. So we started exploring, is it possible to do a one-week treatment? And so we started taking some of the new tools I was developing, and that was reflecting the brain research. And we started formulating that into a one-week treatment. And um, the treatment is actually 45 hours of treatment for persons that are adults 18 and above. We've been testing it now thanks to the National Eating Disorder Association's grant two years ago. We started open clinical trials to have families come. It may be a wife and her husband. It may be an adult that has adult children and she brought her children. I've had, we've had anywhere from people 18 through 60 come to the program. And we accept up to six clients at a time because it is so very individualized. And this article that we just published um, last came out uh, publicly last week um, is the description, the overall description of that 40 to 45 week um, new fed, we call it new fed TR um, one week treatment for anorexia. And so it includes, it has, I'd say five core constructs and that eating disorders, one would be eating disorders are brain-based illnesses. Two, that food is medicine. And if the individual is not able to sense hunger and fullness, then we need to dose the macronutrients just like insulin is dosed in diabetes. And so we will compensate through dosing macronutrients to make up for what the body and the brain, excuse me, the brain is not signaling. And then three, that movement is a key ingredient to treatment and that the brain actually organizes itself through movement. So movement needs to be an integral part of treatment and maybe dosed as well based on how much the body can move in a healthy way. But it shouldn't be eliminated unless the person is an inpatient level. And then four, that supports are a necessary part of treatment and support can be anywhere from spouse, parents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, partners. Um, I, we've even had individuals um, bring their boss from work who went through the whole week of treatment so they can more completely understand the illness and support their incredible employee. And they're allowed up to four supports per client. Um, and that the last and fifth construct is we treat also to the trait. And to treat to the trait is to say, we're not going to just help you manage your symptoms, but we're going to take the traits that help to make you vulnerable to this illness that are common to anorexia and help you start looking at those traits on the continuum that every trait exists on. And that is a trait can be incredibly productive and incredibly destructive. Um, and let's take the one of the most common for anorexia. Perfectionism is a common trait. Typical to clinical psychology, you look at perfectionism from the pathological perspective. But the issue is, I want perfectionism in my staff. I look for it when I hire them. I love that trait. It's just when does the productive, incredible nature of perfectionism become 
di uh, diminished to destructive, self-destructive responses and not being able to get a task done because it's never perfect enough. Or if I didn't eat the exact meal plan, then I don't want to eat it at all. So how can each of the clients uh, work with their supports to both identify their own set of traits and recognize what those traits might look like once again when they're productive. Because it seems to me that we can remove symptoms, but if we don't know what it's going to look like when my life with my traits are going to be productive, then I have no idea what I'm moving toward. So they leave this week of treatment with very individualized, very detailed behavioral agreements that both the clients and the supports have worked through in minute detail to recognize what each can do and what each can't do to help respond to the traits, help use tools that we have them practice hour by hour throughout the day so that they can use something as simple as getting up after the meal and moving for 10 minutes to start lowering the um, anxiety that's starting to erupt and uh, setting some very real lines in the sand that may not be negotiable, but the client may say, don't let me get by with this, but if this happens, um, I need your help for this. And I may be mad about it, but do it anyway. And when supports hear that, then they know what they can do. And the clients have empowered them to do it because they saw what they needed help with and what they didn't. And the clinical tools I developed, as well as just everyday practical tools that we have the clients and supports try on throughout the week are what they leave with. So those are the core constructs, and we do it in very interactive, experiential ways throughout the day as they learn about the neurobiological basis of the, of the eating disorder. So it's um, probably, well, it is the hardest treatment I've ever done in my life and the most productive treatment, and we're beginning to see maybe an actual impact. This study was published looking at mostly the qualitative data, which came out resoundingly. I've never had over 90% clients as well as supports say that they found the treatment to be uh, more than helpful and that they would um, do it again if needed or they would recommend it to someone else. Um, my own perfectionistic trait assumed that there was a lot more wrong that we would need, but the treatment has been constantly revising over the last two and a half years since we've been developing it. And everything clients offer and feedback we take in and anywhere from the manuals that they have helped write from their feedback to the tools we continue to refine. And maybe we, I'm hoping by this next summer, I will have a textbook done to, for any clinician who wants to learn about the brain basis of um, eating disorders and how to translate that into treatment will be done and ready for, um, for the larger public. So we're moving forward, but it, and it's because of the clients and the supports. Right. So, th so, so, thanks for describing it so completely. There, it sounds as if um, this is this is really designed to be something because it's just five days that sort of helps someone kickstart their own in-home treatment or working with their support person treatment, and then they would go away and 
continue the work and that work you said will it. take them there. Um, do you, yes. And, but not necessarily for someone that is in need of, say, inpatient or at that level of um, needing weight restoration to that extent that they should be going for 24-7. What we are finding is some people are coming because there simply isn't any treatment in their area. So they're coming because something is better than nothing. And then their support and loved ones can help them because treatment isn't locally available. We've had many families come for that reason. If at all possible, it's exactly what you said, Tabitha. It's a jump start. It's a stop, a reboot, and a reroute to um, a treatment to a different set of, of tools. And so, if they're in, for example, stepping down from residential, they may the family may come for one week and then they move into a partial at home or an intensive outpatient at home, and hopefully continue it. What we have been finding is some clinicians are embracing it because then they the client comes with their own treatment plan for because we established this for a three month um, segment of time and if possible we conference the clinician home clinician in so the client can say okay this is what we're establishing i'll bring my treatment plan home with me so we can move forward in this direction we have some clinicians that welcome that, others that just simply won't even listen to it. We already have a treatment plan. We're already doing this. We don't need the family involved anymore. And um, clients have felt pretty discouraged when that has happened, which is another reason why we're getting ready to open this to the public. Uh, UC San Diego and our site are the only two sites. And we don't need to be the only two sites, but we're not going to share something with the broader public till we know it's significantly impactful. And so it's looking like that. We're preparing our second paper, which is the quantitative data, and it is showing significant impact um, over time. We're still following um, our six-month and one-year follow-ups, and we'll continue to follow those. Um, but our initial follow-ups are looking very good. And so as a result, um, we will we we have enough evidence that it's worth putting out there and then we can hopefully have other clinicians go okay i've read this i'll go ahead and take this on and try to integrate it into my treatment so in the end there may be parts of this treatment that get you know a, a major seasoning into somebody else's treatment others may flip their treatment altogether as they see the whole new paradigm and why the model works from this dimension because the biology works from that dimension um, but um, at this point it's the treatments there and then it falls off because there aren't treatment providers and there aren't textbooks yet that are addressing this. So we're, we're making them and writing them as fast as we can. So I, um, I know I have a, uh, my audience is, is mainly adults that are in recovery and I know a lot of them um, have compulsive, problems with compulsive exercise as well. So um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about point number three that you made about movement because a lot of them are trying desperately not to exercise. And I know that you called it movement. You didn't call it exercise. And You're right. So could you, could, you, could you talk about that a little bit there? You bet. Um, as I mentioned earlier, when we, we're looking at it from the brain, the brain's, the lower area of the brain being the cerebellum at the base of the brain 
is all about coordination and movement. And um, the the brain begins its development from infancy. The, the baby may be flailing because it can't, uh, it doesn't have refined movement development um, yet, but it's the heart's pumping, the, the vital organs are moving as they should, thanks to the cerebellum and core areas of the base of the brain. And that um, the brain then starts and every aspect of the brain is through that movement. And emotions are next to develop, you know, an infant may have one emotion at a time. It moves from happy to immediately angry to immediately hungry. So emotion kind of flows one after the other. But um, but when the, the adult starts to get bigger uh, and, and grow up more um, and move from uh, elementary age into adolescence, uh, emotions start becoming more complex. You could have two or three emotions existing at the same time, and emotions build on that. Simultaneously, as the infant becomes a toddler, becomes um, a, a young child, the um, evolution of movement in the brain moves up and there's like a hairband of the uh, in the brain at the top of the crown or top of the brain or the skull down the sides toward the ears that the brain uh, is actually growing refined ways of moving based on the thoughts that are evolving in front of it. And then in the very core of the brain, we call it the putamen, there are two almost fist-sized, but um, very, you know, very um, uh, um, middle-like shapes, mid-shapes that are in the middle of the brain that are movement-refined. So you've got movement at the base, movement at the top, and movement in the middle. And all three stations or areas are to be able to put into action immediately the thoughts, the feelings, the putamen is right next to your feeling, your amygdala area. So it's ready to put into action immediately. The get out of here or, you know, um, a car's coming. I don't have to think about it. Movement saved me from, um, I didn't think, I just pulled back. And so movement is wired in the brain to happen before I even think. That's why teenagers tend to get in trouble. They did something before they thought about it. The teenage brain isn't developed well enough yet to think all the details. That's the last thing that the brain develops. The thoughts become more and more complex after the emotions and um, by about the age of 30. We once thought early 20s. Now it's about 30. So then movement is a natural thing. For those with anorexia, um, what we are now seeing is that when the person is eating, sometimes I think of it, Tabitha, like um, eating poison ivy. Um, it's like you get this reaction. Um, you can't stop thinking about size and shape and how horrible I might have eaten that, and I'm not sure I could or should have. And um, a lot of um, angry um, um, self uh, put down statements um, are being screamed in the upper part of the brain and emotions are responding with um, more and more doubt, uh, maybe fear about certain foods. And so that with um, the brain wired as it is, it immediately realizes just naturally that if I'm exercising a lot and moving a lot, I can actually calm and numb those thoughts that become so harried and so noisy and so overwhelming. So 
the in interesting thing is that we're finding the insula, which is right above the ears. It's kind of a, a, a core area of taking all the sensations from the body. It may be, um, do I feel pain? Do I feel hungry? Do I feel full? Do I feel taste? Do I have to go to the bathroom? All of those signals are transmitted up from the body and it has to go through the filter of the insula. And the insula right at that temple area on the, on, in the uh, brain on both sides, it appears is under firing or in some cases with anorexia, not firing at all, which helps explain we've known people can exercise for hours um, on end with um, anorexia and say, I don't feel any pain. It's because they don't feel pain. When we interpreted it from the outside in, we'd say, oh, you're just trying to deny the pain. The fact is they're not, they're not getting the signal of pain. It may be sending it up from the body and going, my legs are aching, my muscles are sore. All the pain may be firing, but it stops, it appears, at the insula area. And the thoughts, therefore, higher up in the brain, do not get the message that there's pain. So I feel no pain, and I can run enough to get my thoughts to diminish and get calmer. It's a natural, purifying, wonderful, cleansing way to counter the chaos of eating and the painful thoughts of eating. The other way we know is just not to eat. It makes sense to me now that we understand the brain that if you don't eat, you feel no mental pain. You have no brain pain from eating. And therefore, and if the insula is not registering hunger signals that may be acute coming from the gut and blood sugar levels, the fact is the thoughts do not think it needs to eat. Therefore, why eat? I actually think better if I don't. And the other part, and this is new research in the parietal, kind of the back crown of the head, the parietal area is what you, one purpose of the multi-purpose area of the brain is how I experience my body size in the space around me. And so looks like in one study that the left parietal is very disturbed from eating. And therefore, as one eats, the body experience of, them, of oneself in the space around them becomes incredibly disturbed. So the side effect of eating is horrible. If anybody, else, anybody felt it, they realize very quickly why one would rather not eat. So to eat in order to keep oneself alive is going to be mentally painful. And extreme exercise becomes a method to stop the pain. However, it can also break the body down, even though the insula is not registering that and sending that signal on. So you can get a sense of disconnect for those with anorexia, not realizing their body is in that much pain. They cannot sense it. Now, there may be small signals, but the anxiety and the noise from the eating outweighs those signals so much that the person may not be able to even sense that pain or that hunger. So what we do with movement and exercise is exactly what we do with food. We dose it. So um, those, unless you're bedridden, we will be saying, all right, we want you to move 
um, whether in like in a tall aerobic um, like or, or more like a, a yoga like walking where you are walking tall and deeping, deep, uh, breathing deeply. So if you are walking that way after a meal, you're going to be able to allow the gut to, to expand better and let the um, the drain or the duodenum area of the stomach begin to loosen up like a balloon when you're blowing in it and you're stretching it. You are literally helping it um, transfer the food on into the duodenum so it can send the minerals throughout the body. But if you're doing it in a dosed amount, and so, for example, in our treatment, we walk 10 minutes after every meal, and the number of husbands and fathers who say, this is the best thing I could ever be doing. And they've, in our follow-up, we're finding out how many fathers now walk with their daughters or how many husbands now walk after every dinner in with their wives and the talks they have. And at first, the, uh, it may be agitated on her part, but the fact is the more, you know, when they walk and they walk a pace that the husband sets, not the, the client wants to do, then the fact is it becomes very soothing after a while, and the person be, can get through some of the painful reaction of eating the food, which is like eating poison ivy. What we're also finding in some cases is variety is out and maybe similarity and highly planning is in. So that if I have to walk through a poison ivy patch, let's say that I'm not familiar with in a new blend of poison ivy, I'm probably going to have a, a reaction sooner. So the issue is if I start dosing my food and I have maybe two to five different dinners that I'm very okay, I'm, I'm getting used to eating, some of the fearful unknowns decrease. The noise in the uh, prefrontal cortex will continue, but it gets lower because you get used to the pain. If the person is younger, they may outwire and rewire in the frontal cortex to actually outwire the illness. If one is over 30, it's probably going to take at least twice as long, but the brain will still rewire. And eventually, the client may have established enough structure that, okay, when I leave, I never leave home without my lunch. I never, just like my, um, someone may never leave home without their insulin. Um, and so you develop the rules just like you had rules to compensate for what you couldn't sense in hunger and fullness. You have rules to now manage how to eat and meals that you may be able to get to the point that you tolerate. Clients will often say, I want to go out to eat. I want to eat like everyone else. But since I have a brain response to food, then I may get to the point that I order the same thing over and over, and I know how that's going to fit in my meal plan, and I can tolerate it. Another thing that's so difficult for people is decisions around food. Um, mm -hmm. And oh, it's so true. It's so difficult. I mean, I know that the other thing that I found particularly difficult and um, the people that I, I work with who are adults um, in recovery find particularly difficult with even when they have all of the best intentions and they know that food is medicine and they really want to recover is just the um, getting through a mealtime alone and the mealtime anxiety, which yes. um, is why I'm actually, and it should be launching next month, I'm hoping, uh, we're setting it up right now is a we're trialing an online um, meal support service uh, which um, please send me information on that so we can share it with our clients 
Yeah, which, and actually the, the way that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sure it stays is so that it's completely just a supplement for whatever treatment a person's doing. Yes, it's, yes. It's a, it's a supplement for when the husband, for whoever is helping them, usually through the mealtime, can't be there. Yes. And, and, you know, we're not giving any sort of treatment. We're not yes. setting meal plans. We're not doing dietary advice. It's just somebody that will is trained enough to be an, a coach and just encourage and handhold and be like, you got this. Come on, we, let's get through this yes. meal. Um, because- an absolute important need. And that's probably one of the biggest gaps. You know, well, if I'm not with my loved one, what do I do? So bravo, Tabitha. Well, it's and it, it really is just through the recognizing what I would have what I needed and then what other people need and um, it, it's a lot of the time I mean I think that so much treatment before has been sort of treating especially in adults with something like an eating disorder which gosh don't we all know that only teenagers get these and haven't you grown out of it yet um, yeah. just being told why, why can't you just eat and sort yes. of not actually and then not being given the tools to eat they want to eat they yes. want to get better they do yes. not like having this illness yes and so you know you've said it so well and I don't know of any person with anorexia I have ever treated who hasn't said that core truth. Um, And it's absolutely as true as I wish I didn't have type 1 diabetes. There's nothing about it that I like, and I have it. Now, what do I have to do about it? Yeah, yeah. well, I'm 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 so excited for I'm excited about the treat the the treatment. Pro- I'm excited about the fact that you're bringing it into the world that this is a brain based illness. I'm so excited about that because mm-hmm. we can go so far with uh-huh. this. We can we can actually fill a lot of these gaps. Yes, and, and get people well. That is, you know, I think we're in that ten year period where we've identified that it's the pancreas, we've identified the equivalent, it's the brain. And, you know, thanks to President Obama in 2013, he signed the Brain Initiative, which is has been likened to um, uh, going to the moon and sequencing the gene. It's the last of the uncharted organs of the body. And that was signed in 2013. The irony is that in 2014, the DSM-5 came out addressing none of the brain-based aspects of any of the mental disorders. And Thomas Ensel uh, at NIMH was perturbed enough and the the uh, Institute as a whole shifted its whole response. Initially, they said, we're not endorsing DSM-5, which you can't say to APA. Uh, and not have ramifications. Then they said, okay, it's coming out, but we are going to be looking at the biological basis of mental disorders here on in with the grants. So if you want grants, you better be looking at the brain base. There's nothing like a good crisis to shift response. So he has he helped change that momentum and universities across the country has shifted their focus to reframe it in the neuroscience area and looking at it more from a brain basis. And just this past summer in two, uh, July 2016, Nature published a wonderful new article that because of this whole new venture and ability of uh, funding to be able to look at the brain, just in the prefrontal cortex, what we call the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. In that area alone, we have 
they identified 97 distinct areas of the brain that have subtly different functions because of the advanced technology. They used four different types of technology. That says everything as we are beginning to look at brain-based illnesses so that we can understand them. I can't help but wonder when the next DSM comes out that it's not even going to be the discrete definitions based on symptoms. It's going to be what are the mutual pathways and will what an obsessive compulsive disorder has been defined as is going to be really what pathway of the brain um, is that taking on and how does that overlap with other illnesses we've defined in other discrete ways and how much various illnesses overlap through their brain pathways. And it's those pathway responses and circuit responses and actual specific areas of the circuitry that we're just looking at. Because now we see fMRI to be our key instrument to understand this. But ultimately, I mean, fMRI is already being seen as inadequate because let's picture our brain like a house and you've got all these rooms in the house. And right now what an fMRI does is it lights up the room saying this much activity is going on. And if it's a if it's a dimmer light, a blue, then it may be this little activity is going on or no activity is going on. We see based on the degree of light that reflects back in the 3D imagery. But the beauty is we're now even getting into what are the objects in the room, the actual neurons and how they're firing with the next neuron to be able to understand the specifics of the house. So we're going to laugh one day soon in five years or so and go, can you believe we depended on fMRIs to understand what was going on? And now we know it's such and such and such and such. We're in that process of change. And we're, I'm thrilled about it. So, um, Dr. Hill, you, you have a lot going on, and I know that people are going to want to find out more <laughs> about, what, about what you do and what you're doing. So where, where can they find out about you? If they come to the website, the Center for Balanced Living, .org, um, there's all kinds of information about what we do, the research we're doing. Um, if persons want more information, there is sold on Amazon. I don't want to say this sounding like I'm just trying to sell something we created in 2012. It's called um, uh, eating disorder or family manual for eating disorders. We created it first for the family before we started putting the this information together that we're now writing for our therapists. But they could look up Laura Hill or eating disorders manual, and you could buy that. Uh, the frustrating thing about any kind of book is, especially in this day and age with the the movement of research, it um, it's changing fast. And so we're going to try to make the book even variable so it can constantly be updated. So we'll see what we can do, but that website should help be a first step. I would like to extend a huge thank you to Dr. Laura Hill there for taking the time to explain so many of the important underlying neurological aspects of having an eating disorder. One thing that you guys can't get from the audio of this that I was able to get because I could see Dr. Hill on the video was 
just the compassion that she has for people who suffer from eating disorders and the level of understanding that she has um, and also the passion that she has for this research really came across in her face and she, she lights up when she talks about these things. And so that's just so wonderful for me, who somebody who has suffered from an eating disorder and often felt hugely misunderstood. But then when you look at the brain and how the brain reacts to food, like Dr. Hill is doing, it's understandable that she can look at that and see the actual differences that a person with an eating disorder has going on in their brain. And then be able to think, well, gosh, that must be pretty awful. And so I think that's where that compassion comes from. And that's why these brain studies are so important and how they can really inform treatment. As Dr. Laura Hill said, I think we're going to see a huge change in the years to come. I think we're going to see leaps in um, developments of understanding and therefore leaps in the way that it, treatment is performed, um, attitudes to eating disorders. I can only hope that all of those things are going to change a lot. I just want to add in there that those of you that are listening to this or listen to this interview with the fabulous Dr. Hill and um, thought, oh, she said movement. That means that I, I'm allowed to do exercise, even though I sort of know that I have a problem with exercise. You know better than that. I, kn I know you. I know, I know how, that, how that can be interpreted by some of us. She said movement and she said yogic postures. And that's really different than exercise. Thank you for listening. And until next time, cheers and cheerio.